now is the time. If you have children between the ages of four and seven, they can follow Mrs. Hudson and go to children's worship. They're also welcome to stay with you if you prefer. And I would ask those of us that remain to turn in our Bibles to the book of 2 Kings, chapter 2. Our text this morning is the entire second chapter. If you would please now give attention to the reading of God's Word. It is holy, it is inerrant, it is sufficient, and it is authoritative. 2 Kings, chapter 2. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, As the Lord, excuse me, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water. And the water was parted to one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, You have asked a hard thing. Yet, if you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father! My father! the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold now, 
There are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him, till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now behold, now the men of the city said to Elijah, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl, and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and said, Throw salt in it, and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless this reading and preaching of your word, that you might cause it to grow deeply, widely, and broadly within our hearts. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, successions and succession plans are an inherently uneasy thing. If you haven't noticed, all of the major news and media outlets, print, television, uh, screen, are filled with stories around the transition that is about to happen with our presidency. And there's a large deal of uncertainty involved. You would think that after what seemed like a three-year campaign, there would be great certainty around what's going to happen, but that's not the case. Who will serve in various capacities? What policies will be pursued? What will happen in our country? But if we think about it, that's not that unusual because we're always, it seems, a bit uneasy about the future when change is involved. Think about the time when you moved from one city to another. Even though you'd given it a lot of thought and prayer and preparation, there's still a bit of a sense of unease. Or perhaps maybe it was when you first went off to college, or your first day at school, or living in a new neighborhood. There's a sense of unease that comes around transition and change. And how much more so when that transition and change deals with what seems to be the core of the kingdom of God on earth. Elijah the prophet was the most visible proponent of the kingdom of God in his day. There were others, as we've seen in 1 Kings, who labored in more obscure areas, protecting and feeding prophets, worshiping the Lord God. But no one was as visible as Elijah the prophet. And now we are about to move into the next stage of the kingdom of Israel. 
a second great figure is about to come onto the scene. A man that we've met before, a man named Elisha. As a matter of fact, if you know the stories, you're not as uneasy as perhaps others would be because you know the continuity. I mean, it seems that even their names are hard to distinguish. They do some of the same miracles. But put yourself in the shoes of an ancient Israelite. Perhaps imagine that for them, it's a bit like you wondering what's going to happen in January when things change. And so what I would like us to see this morning is God's plan for succession, God's succession plan in his visible kingdom. The first thing that we will see is the passing of Elijah. Elijah moving off the scene, the passing of Elijah. And then we will see the prophet's mantle fall upon Elisha, the prophet's mantle both figuratively and literally. And then finally, we will see the continuity between Elijah and Elisha, and that is the presence of God. The passing of Elijah, the prophet's mantle, and the presence of God. Well, let's look then at the beginning of chapter 2. Chapter 2 starts out with a bang. It lets us know what's coming. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. You're immediately thrust into the narrative. You know what's going to happen. But we're not really that different from anyone else in this story. You see, the stage here has been set. It's not just we, the reader, the hearer of the word, that know what's going to happen. It seems like everybody in the story knows what's about to happen. Elijah knows what's going on. Look down at verse 9. He says, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. Elisha knows what's going on. Twice he says to sons of the prophets, yes, I know what's going on. I know he's going. Hush up. The sons of the prophets, the people standing around know what's going on. As they ask this question twice in two different cities. It's because something momentous is about to happen. You know what that kind of anticipation is like. In, in my house, this kind of anticipation happens at the end of every week. It's sometimes spoken, it's sometimes unspoken. As my wife walks by and gives me the look that says, is the sermon done yet? <laughs> this past week, one of my boys walked in and said, are you working on your sermon, Dad? Is it done? Even Abby's gotten into the act lately. <laughs> Everyone knows that that event is about to happen. But at the same time, it's not something we talk about. Because when I get that look, I shoot a look back that says, I'll take care of it, don't bother me. That's what's happening here. There's a tension because everyone knows what's about to happen, but it's not something you talk about lightly. It's a major event about to happen. And it doesn't surprise us then that as a result, the people are on edge. You could imagine that they would be scared. You know, for the people of God here, the only thing that stood in the way between Baal and the people was Elijah. The only thing that stood in the way of wicked kings trying to snuff out the religion of the true God was Elijah. If you can imagine perhaps your sense of trepidation as you think about certain laws being changed that protect the institution of marriage, or the freedom to preach God's word unfettered. 
you can put yourself into the shoe of these Israelites, knowing that Elijah is about to be taken from you, and wondering what will happen when he's gone. What's next? This isn't something that's new. It's something that five or six hundred years earlier, this same type of people wondered as they looked across the other side of the Jordan and said, now that Moses is gone, what's next? What will we do? After all, Moses had been with them 40 years, not just the few years that Elijah had been with them. Perhaps you have experienced this yourself as you've gone on to the next stage of life. What's next? What's coming up? Perhaps you've experienced here or elsewhere when a minister leaves. What will happen now? Who'll preach? Who'll pastor? What will go on? So we can identify with the people of God. This is a very hard journey that they are on. The stage has been set, and they're on edge. And this journey is a very deliberate journey. You may just think it's a series of unconnected incidents, that they're following the AAA roadmap to where they need to go. Let's see. Bethel, then where? Jericho, Jordan. No. This is deliberate geography in the Bible. Elijah is going deliberately to these places. The first thing that I want you to think about is the continuity with the past. This would be the same route that would be retraced by Moses and Joshua. It would remind them of continuity with Moses, crossing the Jordan, going over to Jericho, going to Bethel, conquering the kingdom of Canaan. First with Moses' charge and then with Joshua. And as we'll see in a few minutes, it's deliberate because we see Elisha retracing the exact same steps in reverse. For a reason. Because of that, going Bethel, Jericho to Jordan, and then later on Jordan, Jericho to Bethel, we see that this is a unified chapter. Now, you may have heard me say, and it's true, that chapter and verse divisions in the Bible are not inspired. But that doesn't mean that there's not unity in the Bible. This ge geographical unity tells us that this passage belongs together. Now, why is that important? It's because many would like to separate off some of the unsavory parts of this chapter. What's this business with the bears and the boys? Why the salt? What does that have to do with Elijah? Well, it has everything to do with these two men. This is one unified picture of what God does in his kingdom. It's deliberate. But it's not just a hard journey that they're on. This journey has an end. And the end is spectacular. We see a spectacular exit. This spectacular exit begins even before Elijah, Elijah is taken up. They come to the Jordan. And again, identifying with the power of God in the past, Elijah takes his cloak, he rolls it up, and he strikes the Jordan. And the Jordan divides, and they cross over on dry land. And every one of you, from the smallest to the oldest, that remembers Sunday school stories, should think of 12 tribes crossing over a dry Jordan. It's intentional. The author wants you to see it. But more than that, God wants you to see it. 
You see, God wants you to see that He is the same God in the day of Elijah that He was in the day of Joshua. 600 years before. We'll get more of that in a moment. Elijah does this spectacular miracle that all of the modern commentators don't particularly like. They want to see an errant rock blocking the stream or a dry season accounting for the Jordan being a puddle. But in reality, it's the power of God working through Elijah. And Elijah goes across this Jordan after having several times encouraged Elisha to stay behind and Elisha clinging to Elijah as his master. And then Elijah looks back, knowing, believing, and feeling the loyalty of his servant. He looks at him and he says, Ask of me, what shall I do for you before I'm taken away? Now imagine that. Have you ever had occasion to be in the middle of something very important? One of your young children comes up and tugs on your sleeve. And I'm sure that you, like me, immediately stop everything you're doing and turn over and say, yes, of course, what can I do for you? Let me give you all my attention. It doesn't matter that there's dinner on the stove. It doesn't matter that I'm typing an important email. It doesn't matter that I'm watching this football game. I will give you all of my attention, right? Well, maybe not every time. But that's exactly what Elijah does. At, his, at a time in which... His focus might be tempted to be completely upon himself. What will happen? The Lord will take me. What will it be like to be with the Lord? He is thinking of another. It should remind you of another incident in the scriptures, shouldn't it? When in his hour of greatest need, greatest pain, greatest suffering, our Lord looked down from the cross and looked at his mother and said, I will take care of you. Woman, this is your son. She said, he says, pointing at John, Son, this is your mother. Thinking of another in the hour of greatest need. So we can learn a lesson here briefly as we go through our journey with Elijah, and that is the question to those of you, the challenge to those of you that have walked with the Lord for some time. How can you help those who are younger in the faith than you? How can you shed off thoughts of weak bones, Fading memory, difficulties physically, concerns about providing for your family. And how can you focus upon others and build them up in the faith? Show them what is important. Pass on lessons that have been brought. This is what Elijah does in the midst of this. And Elisha asks for something that at first glance we think borders on bold and crazy. Well, there is one thing, Master. Um, I'll order up a double portion of your spirit. And we sit here and we say, what? What does that mean? Why doesn't he ask for the fire from heaven bit? Why doesn't he ask for the courage to stand up to Ahab? Why the double portion? We don't understand it if we don't have the history of Israel in mind. Because you see... In Deuteronomy 21, we are reminded that it was the right of the firstborn son to get a double portion of all that was the father's. 
That was how he was indicated as the successor, as the firstborn, as the one who was the heir to all the inheritance. He would get a double portion. You may recall there was some difficulty, for example, in the house of Jacob and how the double portion that belonged to the firstborn instead went to others. But that's what Elisha asks for here. He asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit because he wants to serve the Lord God. He's already been indicated as the successor to Elijah and what he says to his master is, I want to carry on the work of God. and I need a double portion of the spirit of God that has rested upon you. He recognizes at the same time his own weakness and the great task that is before him. And with an eagerness to go at the task that God has already called him to, he asks for this bold request. Do you have similarly bold requests of your Lord? Do you desire to serve him with all your might? Do you ask for a double portion of faith? A double portion of the power of prayer? a double portion of patience, a double portion of wisdom. This is the wise thing for the servant of God. He makes this request, and Elijah says, in what seems cryptic, but at the same time becomes obvious, well, if you see me go up, it'll be yours. And for just a moment, we wonder, does he know something we don't know? Is Elisha going to fall asleep? Is he going to miss it? But no. Right on the heels of his statement, as they still went on and talked, chariots of fire and and horses of fire come, and they whip a path between the two of them, pushing them off to the side. And then Elijah is taken up into heaven by a whirlwind. Now, perhaps you remember a Sunday school drawing that has Elijah riding in the back of a flaming chariot. Well, that's not what happens here. It's the storm, the, the, the whirlwind, as God shows once again that he is the God of the storm, not that other fake God of the storm, Baal. Do you remember that? Baal's characteristics were that he was the pagan God of fire and of the storm and of fertility. And over and over again, just as he did with the ten plagues, God shows over and over again that Baal is no God at all. And Elijah is immediately taken up in a private concern and a public concern. The private concern we hear in his words as he yells, My father! My father! See, he's known that Elijah is going, but it still rends his heart. He loves this man. He knows what this man has meant to him all this time. He's traveled with him, shared meals with him, and it affects him deeply. But it's not just a private concern that he has, There's also a public concern. As we hear these words, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, we may be tempted to think of the flaming horses as they go by. But that's not, I think, what Elisha is saying. He's not saying, hey, looky at the fiery horses. No. What he's saying is, there goes Elijah. He was the true defense of Israel. In paraphrasing another military man, Elijah was worth divisions on the field. You had Elijah, and you knew you were going to win the battle. 
He says, there goes Israel's sure defense. What will we do now? My father, the defender of Israel. And he goes off. And then we see how it affects him personally because he tears his clothes in a public sign of mourning. It's a very public and obvious way of showing grief. So this is what we see in the passing of Elijah. But Elijah doesn't go off the scene for very long before we see how Elisha will be used by the Lord. We see that in the prophet's mantle in verse 13. He takes up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen. You can almost imagine if this were a film, as Elijah goes up, you see perhaps a a dark blue cloak floating back and forth on the wind, dropping. And then Elijah Elijah would come up and pick it up and there'd be some form of portentous music that would show that something significant has just happened. But Elisha takes up this cloak. He puts it around him. He literally takes the mantle and puts it over his shoulders. And he walks up to this same Jordan and he folds up the cloak and he says, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And he strikes the water and the waters part. Now, this is not some cheap parlor trick. This is not anything you can do, I can do better. This is a visible symbol of what is going on in the kingdom of God. You see, Elisha does not say, where is Elijah, does he? He doesn't know where Elijah's gone. He says, where is Elijah's God? That's who we need. That's who Israel needs, is the God of Elijah. And he strikes the water and is presented with the power of God in there. The power of God is still in Israel, even though Elijah is gone. You see, he's showing that God's power is not tied to one person. The same God that parted the Jordan for Joshua, parted the Jordan for Elijah, and parted the Jordan for Elisha. You see, God's power is not tied to one place, one time, one person. God is active in history. Do you believe that? Because you see, it might be tempting for Elisha to think, well, you know, Elijah was different, but the power of God isn't like it was in Joshua's day. Well, you might not say that, but you might say something like, Well, you know, it's not like the power of God is evident here like it was during the Reformation. Then God was powerful. Or like at Pentecost. Then, wow, the power of God. But now, you know, God's mostly silent. He's left us to ourselves. Do you believe that the power of God is found today in God's people today? Do you believe that God's word is as powerful now as it was then? That it can change kingdoms, retrace the maps of the earth, convert nations, send leagues of missionaries. That's the same God today as he was then. The God of history is the contemporary God. He is just as powerful. And he's not tied to one person either. Do you think back to great figures in history? Perhaps you think of all of the crusades that Billy Graham had. Or perhaps you think of the great work that was done by George Whitfield. 
Or perhaps you would be tempted like those upon his passing to look to the power of God found in the ministry of John Calvin. But you see, the power is not found in men, it's found in God. That's why Calvin said, he gave explicit instructions, when you bury me, there will be no monument. I will not have people coming to worship at my gravesite. And within months, his gravesite could not be distinguished. This is the God we serve. He's not bound by time. He's not bound by people. You see, for Elijah and Elisha, there were different problems than were faced by Joshua, weren't there? There were different circumstances. There were different governments. But it was the same God working the same power to advance his kingdom. Is your hope in the Lord? Does your help come from the Lord? Or are you thinking about structures, laws, bills of rights, circumstances? The same God that you serve now is the God that Elijah and Elisha served. Well, these sons of the prophets, they see Elisha strike the water and the water move and they immediately say, he's got the power. This guy is the successor. It's obvious, right? And so they walk up and they say, excuse me, sir, we know you're in charge. They bow down. But we have an idea here. We've got 50 guys and and they're good sprinters. Let them go look and see if they can find Elijah. And Elijah looks at them and he says, no, I don't think that would be right. And they say, oh, come on, please. And he says, no. I don't think so. And they nag him, and they cajole him, and they bother him until the text says that he's ashamed. You can just imagine, he's all, all right already. Go ahead and look. And you, we might imagine that he says something as he turns away that many a father and mother has said after ins- their child insists, 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 and to teach them a lesson, they say, go ahead, you're not going to find anything. Right? And so they go off. And surprise, they don't find anything. And we might say to ourselves, why, why this incident here? Are they looking for Elijah's body? But why is this being described for us here? We're just, we've just gotten a good glimpse of the power of Elisha. Why doesn't the text go on to tell us about all the, the powerful, visible, wonderful things that he does? I think there's a purpose here. That God wants us to see that the mantle is passed not only in terms of the power of God, but the wisdom of God. You see, Elisha is not just Elijah's heir in terms of power. He now has the wisdom of God resting upon him to make right decisions and to know what the next step for the kingdom is. There's one difference here, though. The people see and get the power. They don't see and get the wisdom. Do you notice that? They're all impressed by the water show. But when sound advice comes their way, well, no, 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 we really thought this through. Let us go and do this. Do you notice that? Do you know why that is? Well, if you're thinking, well, it's because wisdom isn't really as flashy as power, I think you're right. It's not as obvious. It's not as exciting. Why would God want to show us this? 
Isn't that something that we today, right here, right now, are tempted by? To get the power, but to not really get the wisdom. To not really see the value in wisdom in the church. Have you thought about that? One commentator puts it this way. He says, you know, when we pray for someone to be cured of cancer, and it happens, everybody gets excited except even, excuse me, even Presbyterians. And that's good. But do we have the same kind of excitement when we see someone make a wise choice of a spouse? That's really good use of wisdom, biblical truth. Or do we just kind of take that for granted? Do we go out and look at a building that's being raised and say, wow, a building. We all came together. Look at that. And then do we have the same reaction when we see principles of sound stewardship worked out in our church? Man, they put together a budget. I can't believe it. What sound wisdom and stewardship? They're planning for their future. I can't believe these young couples have determined how they will serve the Lord. What good stewardship of their time. Are we tempted to say, yeah, that happens. Look at the building. You see, that's we're tempted just like these sons of the prophets to gravitate toward the power when in reality the wisdom of God is something we need to see every day. This is what rests now upon Elisha, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And then we get to see that in action as we see the presence of God in verses 19 and following. Elisha continues his journey going back through where he's just gone, and he stops now, goes over Jordan and stops in Jericho. And the people come up to him and they say, you know, we could use some help here. The situation in the city is nice, but the water's bad. We imagine that perhaps either word has come forth or maybe some of these people in the city were with the sons of the prophets when they saw Elisha strike the water, saw the water move. They think, this is the guy to ask. He can give us some help. And so they see that he's the clear successor to Elijah, and they want to know, how will God use him? What can we do? What's going on here? And they bring to him a need that is beyond human help. They say, listen, There's a problem here. Jericho is a place of death. Now, the text hides it a bit. It says, the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. And we think of a half a bushel of corn instead of a full bushel of corn. But that's not really what's going on here. If you look down in verse 21, after the water has been healed, there is neither what? Death nor miscarriage. That word for miscarriage is the same word for unfruitful. And this translation and other translations translate it as unfruitful because when the land miscarries, it doesn't bear forth fruit. But I think there's something more that's going on here. Elisha walks into Jericho and it's a place of death. Young calves are dying. Young sheep are dying. Miscarriages are happening to families. It's a place of sadness, death, sorrow, despair. This is not, we're not having a bumper crop. 
stock of Jericho Inc. is down 10%. This is death is going on here. And what does this have to do with Jericho? Well, remember what kind of a place Jericho is. Do you remember? We saw Jericho. Oh, it's now been, what, about three or four months ago. The story we all know from Jericho, every child in Sunday school knows that the army of Israel goes around the walls of Jericho, right? How many times, children? Seven times, right? And they blow the horns and the walls fall down. And Joshua says, no one rebuilds this city. If anyone rebuilds this city, they will lay the foundations and they will lay the gates with the lives of their children. Fast forward 500 or so years, and the building program in Israel needs some pizzazz. And the king goes to a smart architect and he says, you know, can we rebuild Jericho? First Kings 16. And he says, I think so. And somebody says, well, you know about that curse, you're not supposed to rebuild it. And he says, curse, smurf, forget it. What happens when Jericho's rebuilt? Do you remember? Not one, two sons die in the rebuilding of Jericho. So Jericho is a place not only of death, but Jericho is a place that deserves death. Everybody that lives in Jericho should know better. You don't live in Jericho. That's where people die. This is where people deserve death because of the curse of God. They're getting what's coming to them. This is AIDS breaking out in pagan homosexual communities. This is war coming upon nations that push and enslave. This is where we stand back and as the people of God we say, you're getting what you deserve and we hope you get double of it, right? But it's interesting what God does. In a place that is guilt-ridden, sin-laden, curse-laden, He brings healing and grace. Do you see that? Jericho deserves everything they get, but the Lord, the healer, comes in the midst. And in a symbolic action, I don't think there's any magic in the salt at all. It's symbolic just like the way perhaps we use water in baptism, or bread and wine in the Lord's Supper. Because the waters are healed not by the salt, but at the word of the Lord. The word of the Lord comes to a place of death, sin, and judgment, and it brings grace and life. Do you see that? That is written here not for the historians of Jericho, Christian. That is written for you. You who perhaps are carrying guilt from sins long ago confessed and forgiven but you still seem burdened down by them. Family situations that seem like they'll never be whole again. You see, it's the job of Elisha. It's the job of the minister to come alongside you, to grab you by the arm and forcefully drag you off to Jericho and to say, this is where your God is. This is where forgiveness is found. This is where atonement is found in the word of God. No matter how black the sin, no matter how difficult the situation, no matter how deserved the death, God delights in grace. Is that true in your life right now? If not, you need to book your tickets for Jericho. 
You need to go and see God at work in your life. Well, we see the other edge here as we conclude. In the two-edged sword of God, we see the presence of God not only in transforming grace, we see it also in fearful judgment. Because the next stop on the Elisha journey is a town called Bethel. And he goes out and he goes around the outskirts of town. And we may want to dismiss this incident, think that Elijah, Elisha should just simply have thicker skin. He should ignore it. He should repeat to himself, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me, right? And go right on. Perhaps put his hat on. Until we realize what's really going on here. We need to think about what kind of place Bethel is. Bethel is the center of false worship in Israel. It's where the golden calf was put. It's where idolatry started in Israel. It's the place that has no time for God. And then we think about the group that's doing the harassing. And small boys makes us think perhaps of, you know, some of the little kids that went off to children's church. But that's not the case. We're looking here more perhaps at youths somewhere between the age maybe of 10 and 17. Kids that should know better. And it's not just a couple of them. 42 of them are mauled. So there's a small mob. It could be a group of youths perhaps even as big as our congregation going after this one man of God. And there's an intention that's involved here. You see, they're not just standing around the local Bethel candy store or video game emporium, and Elisha walks by and they say, well, you know, you maybe ought to get out of here. No, they see him outside the city. They gather up a group. They go out of the city, the text says. They track him down, and they harass him on the way. And what they say to him, the big insult is not really the baldness of the head. We're not even sure that they were looking at his head because it would be customary at that time for men to have their heads covered. But what they're saying is, get out of our town. Get up out of here. We don't need you. We don't need your God. Prophet. It's very parallel to the soldiers in the last chapter. You remember them? Oh, man of God, get down here now, lickety-split. Oh, man of God, get out of town. You're worthless and so is your God. And he turns over to them, and he curses them in the name of the Lord. Now, again, don't import your modern sensibility into the text. This doesn't mean he used four-letter words. This doesn't mean he came up with some magical incantation. Ali, ali, oxen free, supercalifragilistic, expialidocious. No, what he does is he repeats the judgment of God in the name of God to them. He repeats what we see as a curse in Deuteronomy. That those who mock God will be attacked by wild animals. And that's exactly what happens. God's word is fulfilled. It's another instance of our author saying, God said it. Of course God does it. It's the two-edged sword of God. So the question then comes to you here. Are you excited and thrilled about the grace of God at Jericho? I hope you are. 
But at the same time, are you fearful of mocking this God and His grace? Do you take Him for granted? Do you take all the good blessings that He gives to you and brings to you and mock Him? Do so fearfully, for judgment will fall. The same one who heals destroys. The same one who encourages curses based upon the truth of His Word. Well, this has been a rather exciting story. It's had all kinds of action in it. It's had fire. It's had whirlwinds. It's had healings. It's had wild animal attacks. But at the center of all of this, I hope what you see is the presence and the power of God. The same God in Israel as in Katie. The same healer then as healing now. The same bringer of judgment then as the bringer of judgment now. This is the God, Christian, with whom you have to deal. And if you are sitting here this morning and you do not know this God, do not mock Him. Do not presume upon His grace. Do not presume that everything will just continue to be exactly as you want it because you deserve it. You must run to Him. Run to His wisdom. Run to His power, both of which are found in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the wisdom of God and the power of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have shown to us Your great glory in the lives of Elijah and Elisha. Lord, we pray that You would impress upon us Your wisdom, that You would show us Your power, that You would transform us by Your grace, and that You would reign us in by Your warnings of judgment. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.